Well, let's get to it. Matthew chapter 23. Would you turn there with me, please? Matthew 23. We begin a big section of red letters, which is great. Jesus is gonna give um, some of the longest sermons or dissertations in all the Bible, as it turns out. So uh, um, hang on to your hat, this is important. But in some ways, Matthew chapter 23 is his last public sermon. And uh, it's gonna be interesting to see what that has to say. What do you think Jesus' last public sermon is? Think about that for a second. Uh, but that's, that's what we're about to read here. Um, but I love the Bible. I love hearing words of Jesus, especially in a day where people don't really know what they're talking about. A lot of the things we hear uh, in the news, uh, the things we hear people say about our health or what about our uh, future, like people just really don't know what they're talking about. If there's one thing we know from history is people are just kind of dense when it comes to uh, knowing what the truth is. Um, I love, there's so many examples of that in history. Some of my favorites, um, Thomas J. Watson Jr., who was the chairman of the board of IBM in 1943, he said, I think there's a world market for about five computers. <laughs> that was his prediction. Uh, this is a good one. The producer at Decca Records in 1962, they said, um, we don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. Um, in 1964, uh, there's an sh uh, article here showing that they were uh, the 1964 best new artist. Uh, so that was a bad prediction. Um, I like this one. A 19th century bishop uh, said from the pulpit, uh, heavier than air flight is both impossible and contrary to the will of God. Um, this was Bishop Milton Wright. He had two sons named Orville and Wilbur. <clears throat> As it turns out, two rights do make one wrong. Um, uh, sorry. But anyway, I could go on and on of bad predictions in history. But, but what I love about the Bible, when it comes to the Bible, we can, we can know what the truth is. You know, Jesus talked about this, uh, not only that he is the truth, but he says the truth will, will make you free. And there's freedom as we study the Bible, there's liberty and freedom that comes from knowing what the truth is. And how do we know what's right and what's wrong, what's good or bad? Our culture, you know, uh, morality is swinging back and forth and, uh, you know, going on all kinds of extremes to extreme immorality. And we see, you know, not only is it just the world in general, but even, you know, churches have started to embrace godless, horrible sort of notions that the Bible actually teaches against. The LGBTQIA issues. It's amazing how many, you know, religious groups and leaders and ministers and, and pastors have accepted, um, you know, uh, homosexuality as normal and common, even though the Bible says it's sinful and it's an abomination. Um, it's amazing how many churches are silent on the issue of abortion, even though the Bible's really clear on you know what, what that is. Brett, you're just being political. No, I'm being biblical. You gotta understand, I'm not being political. Uh, you can call whatever you want politics, but when the Bible talks about these issues, then, the, then I will talk about these issues, uh, and uh, I think every pastor should. Uh, but even on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, I'm amazed to hear what some people are saying. I heard a, a podcast the other day. Um, and it's one of these, you know, podcasts that talks about the horrible mega church and, uh, and uh, all the bad things that are going on in the church. But basically calling churches that um, are complementary, uh, complementarianism, that is uh, that we believe men and women complement one another. Uh, but we're not the same. Uh, 
And we also believe there's different roles for men and women in the church, just kind of like the Bible says really, really, really clearly. Uh, we believe that, we follow that. Um, but there's a lot of people that are hating on that today. And you, you must be egalitarian, which basically says, you know, women should be senior pastors and elders in the church. Um, and, uh, you know, we've done whole teachings on that. Uh, women are not less than men. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're not um, lower or any, of course, that's, that's ridiculous when people make that sort of false accusation against churches that believe that men and women are complementary, uh, complementing one another. We don't compete with one another, we complete one another. That's the goal, uh, and um, we see that in the church, the early church, the book of Acts. We see women being a key part of the early church. But um, it's amazing, I heard this podcast this last week basically saying you're a cult if you're complementary. If you, if you don't uh, believe that women should be elders and pastors, you're a cult. Uh, when did we redefine what a cult was? Uh, it's all happening. Redefinition is kind of the latest game that people have played in the last several decades. And it's really kind of messing up what, what is true. But I love that you and I, we have the Bible to lean on. We don't listen to the latest podcast and say, oh, I guess I have to change my worldview because of the podcast. No, we, we let the Bible uh, dictate what, what is true and then we, everything else is false outside of the Bible that, that contradicts the Bible. Um, the things that are said in scripture, that should be our anchor. Um, and that's why uh, we need to be like those people in Acts chapter 17, 11. I always like to remind people, don't just listen to me, Pastor Brett, but uh, listen to the Bible. Acts 17, 11, the, the people, the, um, the, they, they were de determined to be more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, which I love that. That alone is great. They're ready to receive God's word. Um, with already, so, and then they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. The things that even Paul was preaching, they would say, let's make sure that's correct, um, what, what that guy is saying, because that's just a dude talking. Let's, let's confirm in the scripture. And I invite everyone to make sure, always check what I'm saying, and every other pastor and podcast and uh, person out there, you need to make sure. Um, but the Bible is so miraculous on so many levels. I love the truth of the scripture. You'd think there'd be one thing that suddenly historically was totally off or wrong, some archeological dig that sort of unveils the fallacy of the Bible, uh, but that has never happened. In fact, it's the opposite. Every time they stick a shovel in the ground in, in Israel, it only confirms the Bible exactly as it uh, was written. Uh, so it's, it's not even a book of science, but when it touches things of science, it's amazing how accurate it is. Even when they were thinking the, the um, world was flat, the Bible said that it was a sphere and it's hung upon nothing. Um, this was long before we knew what you know, the world was really like and how science really worked. But um, in, not only in archeological issues or even scientific issues, um, what about you know, historical issues and even prophecy in the future prediction that the Bible gives? It's just over and over confirms that it's more than just some work of literature. The book that we have in our hands tonight is the inspired word of God. Probably, if you ask me, one of the greatest evidences of that is the prophecy. And especially, you might even say the prophecy is related to the Jews. The fact that Israel is a powerful nation today and that they've regathered out of being scattered all over the world and lost their Hebrew tongue and no longer existed as a nation for almost 2,000 years, and then they were regathered just like the Bible says, exactingly. Um, how could you recreate that? Or how could you even predict that unless there was a supernatural element? And, and not just the, the, the general details, the very exacting details 
about how the Jews would be scattered and that they'd be scattered for a long time. The diaspora, as it's called. And then the regathering of Israel and the restoring of the Hebrew language and all those things are, are just perfectly fulfilled in Bible prophecy. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of knuckleheads out there saying, well, the Bible's prophecy. It's not, it, it was all fulfilled back in this AD 70 or whatever, um, even though Bible prophecy is still being fulfilled as we speak with the nation Israel. Um, that, that just shows the short-sightedness. Stick with the Bible. You'll be in really good standing if you stay with the Bible and, and forget you know, man's opinion. That's important for us. And that's what we seek to do here as we go verse by verse. Let the Bible be our, our authority on what is true. Um, in fact, I think it'd be nice for us to, instead of saying, here's what I think about that, um, it'd be nice if we got really good at saying, well, here's what the Bible says about that. And let that be what we talk about. Uh, when people ask us questions, don't say, well, I think uh, if you're saying that, then um, you might be wasting your time. But if you say, but here's what the Bible says, then, then we're actually doing something of value. And all that to say, uh, chapter 23 before us is what I'm gonna call a very bold and maybe even a brutal chapter. Uh, the last sermon G Jesus gives publicly, that is to the multitudes. This is, this is a message to the multitudes here in Jerusalem. And you know, you think, will he end on one of his gracious ministry notes? Uh, remember, they always marveled at his gracious words that he spoke. Is that the last sermon he's gonna give, a nice gracious one? Uh, these are some of the most brutal words in all the Bible, right here, which we're about to read. And it's, re it's against the religious leaders of the day, the false teachers, um, conning people out of money, uh, some of these religious leaders were, they were leading the people astray. Um, and Jesus wants everyone to know what the true ministry should actually look like. Um, and will no longer be there in person to condemn these false teachers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So um, Jesus is gonna, by the way, in his brutal words, he's gonna perfectly line up with Old Testament scripture. Um, they could have discerned, as I even just suggested, they could have discerned, is this, this guy talking about what lines up with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible? Uh, because every word that Jesus says will in fact line up with Old Testament. That just shows how far off religion can be even though they claim to have religion. Um, and that's how far off the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and all these guys, the Sanhedrins, um, um, laws and rules. Now in the Old Testament, uh, we, we read about the blessings and the woes of the children of Israel. Um, and when the Lord wants to bless the people, um, he blesses them, but when they rebel, he pronounces woe, and, and Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what this chapter's about. It's, it's Jesus, who is God, pronouncing woes, like in the Old Testament. If you went through the Old Testament with us, remember I talked about uh, Isaiah's horse named Ismi? Um, because he always said, woe is me. Um, sorry, that's what we talked about in Isaiah. But, um, uh, but, but Jesus is now gonna reflect the, the heart of God of the Old Testament to these religious leaders in the New Testament, uh, and he's gonna pronounce woe upon them. Um, the Greek word that I want you to see here, by the way, of woe is kind of important and interesting, but um, as it turns out, here in Matthew 23, we're gonna see the word woe over and over and over again. And the word is this Greek word, uai, which seems like a Hawaii word, but um, if you look up the word in the Greek text, it means horror, or it's a declaration of saying, how dreadful, 
How dreadful. Uh, it's not like a surfer catching a gnarly wave. Whoa, dude. It's, it's, um, it's horror is the idea. And that, when you read that word, woe, we need to see the strength of that word because Jesus is gonna employ that a lot. Um, so, um, so what does Jesus, who lived so long ago, know about our struggles and the things that we're going through? Um, he knows how we work. Um, he knows how uh, our lives are best served to live certain ways. And so we need to really listen to what Jesus is saying in this sermon because he knows what's good for people and he knows what's bad for people. And he's the one who wrote the, the book. He's not only wrote the book, he is the book. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what Jesus is saying here is powerful for you and for me. And it should be a major part of what we know and believe. So here we go. Let's dive into chapter 23 of Matthew, verse one. It says, then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. <laughs> now, this is interesting because um, the Greek language actually says they kind of seated themselves. In fact, it's the New American Standard Version that puts it this way. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They assumed that they could sit in the seats of authority, but they really, the idea is they didn't have the authority to sit in those seats. Um, and so we start off right out of the gate. Like the first sentence in his sermon is, is saying, these guys are you know, not even really qualified to sit in the seat of Moses. They've only assumed that place. They've presumed themselves to be leaders when they're really not. So he starts right out of the gate. And, and let's, let's learn from the Pharisees, the scribes, and maybe jot down a few um, thoughts on this as, as they seated themselves, um, that what other things did they do wrong? Let, let's, kind of, uh, let's kind of check that. And it, and it really starts here um, in verse two. Notice, and you're, if you're jot, jotting down a few notes, lessons to learn from the Pharisees. The first lesson we might learn is they lacked authority, number one. They lacked authority. The people, um, you know, saw them, they would sit in Moses' seat, sort of taking authority. Have you ever seen somebody at work try to take authority that they don't have? Um, or, you know, people in the military, you probably see this where people try to exercise authority that was never really given to them. Uh, they're hoping to get more, more authority. Uh, have you ever seen a government try to overreach and take authority in areas they... <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, well, that's what's going on here. Um, uh, it's interesting. They lacked authority. Now, do you remember what Jesus, what they said about Jesus? Uh, remember Matthew chapter seven, verses 28 through 29, when Jesus, you know, spoke, the people were astonished at his doctrine, the Bible says, um, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. I love how Jesus, boy, don't, don't you wish you could have just seen him like in action as he spoke to, to these, uh, you know, we, last week we saw Jesus put down the, the, the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they were trying to trip and trap Jesus up, but he spoke as one having authority. Now these guys don't have authority at all. And Jesus says, you, you've only put yourself in that place of authority, but it's not really uh, given to you by God. Um, so this idea of authority, something weighty about someone who speaks with authority. But I also love that Jesus spoke with authority, but he still had grace, kind and gracious uh, words. The second thing we see is they lacked integrity. And we see that in verse three. 
There in verse three, it says, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. They lacked integrity, um, and, and it's demonstrated by their sort of hypocrisy. Uh, they're, they're hypocrites. Um, these, these Pharisees would say, you know, do what the, the scriptures say. And it's interesting that they were saying the right things, and Jesus even said, do the things that they say, but don't do what they do. Um, so they were the definition of hypocrisy. And, and Jesus is gonna call these guys hypocrites over and over again in this chapter, uh, by the way. But this is where that kind of starts in verse three. Um, Jesus says, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Um, and uh, sometimes I worry that moms and dads, we can be pharisaical in this way. If you're a parent in this room, be careful for this, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, when you're trying to raise your kids or teach your kids, um, okay, make sure and read your Bible at night uh, or in the morning and you want them to do it, but you don't do it yourself. Um, you know, uh, make sure and treat each other with respect and kindness, but you as a mom and dad don't treat each other with kindness and respect. Don't, don't expect your kids to do better than you do. Um, you have to set the pace and be people of integrity if you want your kids to learn. But that's kind of an example of how this applies to us in some ways. The Pharisees were legalists. Uh, they were saying, here's what you do, but they weren't willing to do it themselves. Now, um, by the way, on these Pharisees, uh, there's something, I'm gonna take a break from this list here just for a second. We'll get back to that. But there's another list I wanna show you, and that is the Talmud uh, des uh, describes the Pharisees in kind of a funny way. Um, uh, if you read the Talmud, one of the things that you'll kind of chuckle at is these uh, various kinds of Pharisees. Um, and uh, they actually had names for them and what have you. Uh, the one group is called the uh, Shoulder Pharisee. Um, and the reason they called this one group the shoulder Pharisees, they were famous for wanting others to see their good deeds. And somehow they would sort of wear their good deeds on their shoulder. When they helped someone, they would wear something on their shoulder to prove that they'd borne someone else's burden. And so they'd help only to be seen of men. And so that was, they, they called these the shoulder Pharisees. There was another group of Pharisees they called wait a little Pharisees. Um, and this is, of course, English translation from you know, Hebrew, but these are kind of rough uh, translations. But basically, they were famous. They were Pharisees for promising to help people, help the poor, help, help, help. But they were famous for procrastination. They said, oh, yeah, we're going to help you. Just, you know, just, we'll be there. And they never really would show up. So they were, wait a little. It's, it's all going to be good. You just wait. And they just kept saying, wait, 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 but never actually pulled through. Um, then this is a funny one. The, have you guys heard of these guys? The bump and stumble Pharisees. Um, who were they? They were extremely pure. They were trying to be so pure that they didn't want to see anything with their eyes that might cause them to lust. Um, so when they walked around, they'd literally put their, they'd wear their you know, little hats in there and they'd look straight down, just down on the ground and they wouldn't look anywhere unless they look at something with lust. And so they'd constantly be bumping and stumbling over things uh, because they weren't looking where they were going unless they see something they'd lust after. So they were called the bump and stumble Pharisees. Uh, this is the Talmud. These are Jewish writings about these Pharisees. The humpback Pharisees. Um, they would hunch themselves over purposefully to sort of uh, seem um, uh, more humble somehow 
uh, and, uh, and they'd kind of bow themselves all the time, uh, being all, all humble. The fifth group was called the compound uh, Pharisees. And the, uh, this basically, this was a, a group of Pharisees that literally carried with them lists of things. Um, they, they'd keep lists on their robes of all their good deeds. Um, some of them would keep lists of who they were related to and they'd show. Remember um, Paul told Timothy, don't give heed to those, those leaders that come with their endless genealogies, you know? Uh, and it, was, it had to do with their, who, who they were related to. It's like, oh, you wanna know who I'm related to? They'd roll out their genealogy and they'd show how they were somehow related to Abraham. And so that makes them amazing. Uh, they were called the compound Pharisees. And then there were the timid Pharisees. Um, the timid Pharisees wanted to be perceived as humble, so they spoke very, very quietly and were very timid. They didn't want to seem too pushy, so they were kind of um, Collins on uh, Pride and Prejudice, uh, um, if you know that reference. Uh, sorry that I do. Um, uh, and then uh, number seven, the God-fearing uh, Pharisees. Now, which group is this? Well, as it turns out, um, even in the Talmudic tradition, there were some Pharisees that were deemed um, as truly God-fearing, truly trying to seek after God. And um, we might even meet a few of these in the upcoming gospels of um, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of these Pharisees that were truly, innocently, honestly trying to seek the Lord. Um, the, um, so most of the Pharisees would talk the talk, but not really walk the walk. Um, and, um, and boy, that's one thing you and I don't wanna be is these hypocritical uh, Pharisees that Jesus is basically calling out on the carpet here in chapter 23. He's calling all this goofiness that I just listed, he's calling it out and saying it's hypocritical and, and we don't want you to go that way. We, none of us should go that way. But you know, you and I have the same propensity to be hypocritical, it's, it's human nature. So as we read this, let the Lord just convict our hearts in areas maybe where we promise stuff that we don't really do or we act humble, but we're really not or whatever these you might find yourself in. Uh, Christians can be hypocritical as much as anybody. Um, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, it's good to remember who you are. I remember Paul there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 saying, you know, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ came to save uh, the, the sinners of the world of whom I am chief. Paul said, I am the chiefest of sinners. And he wasn't being falsely humble. He had a, a, a right sense of self, self-awareness of his own sin. Um, and Romans 7, he says that stuff. For the good that I would do, I do not, but the evil which I uh, would not do, that I do. And he, he, he was honest about his struggle with sin. That was Paul the apostle who struggled with that. Um, sometimes I worry that we as Christians want to be perceived as so pristine that we won't admit when we're failing or when we need help or when we need to confess our sins. Um, and it's, it's a troublesome thing when churches get to where we all come to church saying, man, I just, whatever we do, don't let them see my failures or that I, that I actually have mistakes or sins. Um, that could be one of the most unhealthy things we do as a church, putting on this facade of we got it all dialed in. Um, and that's why I mentioned all the time, because I want to be like Paul and I want to be honest. I'm a sinner just like everybody else in this church. Uh, I might be more sinful than, than a lot of you guys. Uh, who knows? Is it going to be interesting when it's all kind of comes out in the wash in heaven? We're going to kind of see, oh, I think I was really that good. Ooh, wow. Good thing God's grace is in place. Ooh. You know, I don't know how it's going to be, but I do know this. 
Um, we're all gonna realize, yeah, everybody's a sinner. Every, you know, righteous and true are his judgments. Um, everyone wrestles with sin. And, um, you know, I, I see this all the time, like couples that struggle with marriage and the last thing in the world, they want somebody to know that they're struggling with marriage. So they cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. And, um, and then um, only to end up where it's beyond repair. Uh, when they should have reached out for some help or some good counsel, safety in a multitude of counselors, like the Bible says, um, don't be stubborn uh, in that area. Uh, that's just a hard-hearted hypocrite who is unwilling to admit their failures. And we all have them. Uh, it's easier said than done. Um, and uh, I think that's something we should all be concerned about. So, um, so all this to say, back to our, li- our previous list, lessons to learn from the Pharisees. Um, we see number three on our list, they lacked sympathy. They lacked authority, they lacked integrity, but they also lacked sympathy. And we see that in verse four. It says, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They won't even lift a finger when they, but, but what, what do they do? They lay these heavy burdens. Uh, remember Galatians tells us that you and I, we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, to love. Um, we're to bear one another's, not be a burden, we're to bear burdens. And it's funny how Christians, we can, leave, we can be burdensome to people, putting heavy things on people. You gotta get this together and you better fix that. Instead of helping bear the burden, we just become part of the burden. And that's what, where these guys lack sympathy. They wouldn't lift a finger to help those that were struggling, um, which Jesus um, actually uh, uh, was the complete opposite. Everywhere Jesus went, he would end up bearing the burden. Whether it was the sick, he would heal them. Whereas people that were downtrodden and cast out, he would love them. Uh, like on and on. And Jesus, even, you know, Matthew eleven twenty eight, you know, come unto me, all ye which are weary and heavy laden, you know, he said, uh, you know, and, and I will give you rest. Um, he, he invited them to come. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Um, the, he's, Jesus is the opposite of these Pharisees. He was a burden bearer. Ultimately, bearing the burden of all the sin of humanity on the cross. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer. The burdens you and I couldn't bear, that is the laws of sin and death, Jesus bore for us. So we need to be more like Christ on that. Are you a burden bearer or are you a burden. When you walk into the room, do people go, oh, good, they're here. They're going to help. Or do they, when you walk in a room, they go, oh, no, bummer, Mr. Burden. <laughs> Miss Burden, here she is laying heavy trips on. Are you a burden, a bummer, or a blessing? Something to ask yourself. Maybe you should ask your wife or your husband uh, to get an honest answer. But, but as Christians, I think one of the things we want to be is bearing one another's burdens. That should be part of the deal. These Pharisees lack sympathy for people who were burdened. And so they just laid on heavier burdens. Um, and so, um, you know, I love it. You know, like Jesus, just example after example, you know, John chapter eight, verse 11, when, you know, uh, Jesus asked, where are your accusers, those that condemn you? And, and Jesus, uh, you know, asked her and she said, uh, there's no one left here. 
Uh, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. That's what it looked like. Instead of you know, coming down on her and, and weighting her down with her guilt and her sin, he actually bore the burden and lifted that, said, I don't condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Legalism kills and lays a burden. But every time Jesus comes and deals with things, he brings joy. Um, by the way, that's what church what, what Athey Creek wants to be. We wanna be those that bear burdens. Um, and it's funny because uh, sometimes churches get a bad rap. Sometimes they get a, legis, a, a, a legitimate rap uh, for being bad and bad behaviors, of course. But um, you know, when, when I teach the Bible up here, sometimes there's things that we talk about that make people mad. Uh, I get that. Um, but it, that's why I say, read your Bible and don't just listen to me. But when it comes to Athey Creek and how we act toward one another, one of the things we really wanna do is to be helpers of men's joy and women too, men and women's joy. Um, I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He, he said, you know, not that we wanna have dominion over your faith, but wanna be helpers of men's joy for by faith you stand, he said. Um, so not having dominion, not being controlling. Some churches do get a little controlling. I remember a buddy of mine that went to a church uh, and it was very legalistic and it was very controlling. And like, if you wanted to do something, you had to get permission from the pastors. Like if you wanted to buy a new house, you had to have approval from the elders at the church. Uh, some of you have come from churches like, how many of you guys came from kind of legalistic churches like that? Anybody? Yeah. Some of you guys, and it, it's brutal. I, I've seen people um, still wounded from that kind of stuff for decades after they were gone from that church. It's, it's a brutal scene, uh, very legalistic. Um, but instead of the church having dominion or control over you, what, what the church, what we really should wanna do is be helpers of men's joy. Not laying a burden, but bearing a burden. So that's kind of one of the things we wanna really work at here at Athey Creek. It's not about rules and regulations. It's more about a relationship with Jesus where you'll find blessing. Um, so they lacked authority. They lacked integrity and they lacked sympathy. And then they also uh, lacked humility in verses five through seven. Let's read those. It says in verse five, but um, all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge their borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, rabbi, rabbi, <laughs> this is interesting. Um, they lacked humility. They wanted to be the big shot. They wanted to be the head honcho. They wanted to be perceived as influencers and famous and you know, noted as um, effective and powerful and whatever. But Jesus says it was all just, uh, you know, uh, they, they loved being called rabbi. The word rabbi is an interesting word if you do a little bit of a word study on it. The word rabbi, um, rab in the Hebrew, um, um, but the rabbi in the Greek text means master um, or teacher. Um, but it also has some interesting uh, sort of accolade with it. That is my great one or my honorable, honorable sir. When you called someone rabbi, it was sort of a, um, a term of, of respect, but also saying you're amazing pretty much. Um, and, um, and then when you look at it in the, the Latin, that's where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, it's, it's the word where we get the word doctor, um, which means to teach. 
And that's interesting because isn't it funny that we just change the word from you know time to time, but it's still the same word. Oh, that's he's a PhD, doctor so-and-so. Wow. Amazing. But, but um, one of the things Jesus sort of criticizes is um, people that are just there just to get soak up the accolades from man. Say, yes, call me doctor or rabbi. Um, they called Jesus rabbi, remember, over and over again. But did Jesus live for that? Oh, they called me rabbi. I feel so big now and in, uh, encouraged. Uh, no, Jesus could care less about those titles as it turns out. But it's interesting that man cares about titles and what have you. Um, I, I, I always crack up uh, when I get mail here at the church when it ever says Reverend Brett Metter. I realize they don't know me. Into the trash it goes. If you call me Reverend, I won't read it because uh, usually it's some form letter from some group that wants to do something weird or whatever. Um, and uh, if they call me Reverend, they, they're so off course, it's not even funny. Uh, if they said irreverend, I might open that letter. Um, or the most honorable, venerable, most right reverend, whatever. Like all these, these dumb titles that we give people. And, and Jesus seems to really teach against this whole idea of the titles. Um, they loved their title. They loved their places of honor, their chief seats. Uh, got, they got to sit with the big shots there. Um, by the way, uh, one of the things that I remember as a little kid going to various churches, is, uh, whenever the, the big, big wigs in the church would sit up on the stage with the pastor, how many of you guys had that when you were growing up as a kid where the, the, the deacon or the pastors were all sitting in the seats? And me and my buddies, we would bet who would fall asleep first behind the, you know, which one of the big wigs, you know, was gonna be drooling by the middle of the sermon. Um, that's what we did. But, um, but, but uh, you know, it's having the chief seats. I, I, I just kind of, I, I remember as a kid thinking that just seems wrong to me. Um, then when I went to Africa, uh, it was so awkward for me because uh, the, the African pastors, and they're some of the hardest working you know, people I know on the, in the world, just working and serving the Lord in the middle of the bush of West Africa. But um, whenever we'd come and speak, they'd always give me a chair right up at the front behind the podium, you know? And, uh, and I understand what they were doing. They were just saying, you're an honored guest. And so I just, you know, accepted that uh, as graciously as I could. But I, I remember just being so uncomfortable with that because I'm like, you guys should be sitting up here. I should be sitting in the back over there with a dunce cap on in the corner. Um, but you guys are, you know, esteeming me as something I'm really not. Now, I was a guest, so I just taught the word and shared with the pastors while I was there at the pastor's conference and sat up in the front and stuff. But, um, but I, if, if I were there and I developed a relationship deeper with them, eventually I'd probably try to get around, hey guys, let's lose the, 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 the esteemed seats, you know? Because it wasn't just me, it was some of the other esteemed pastors that would all sit up in the back. And I just, I just think that's too much, too close to what Jesus is condemning here. The Pharisees loved to have the chief seats in the house. Uh, I don't want any part of that. Um, so that's, that's, that's really why Athey Creek, you don't see, you know, Pastor James and Tad and, you know, uh, all the guys, Ian and, and Gabe and all those guys sitting back here behind me. I'd be afraid some of them would fall asleep on me uh, <laughs> uh, for my long, tedious sermons. But, um, but no, um, I, um, I, I am glad we have those guys, but none of those guys that we have would want to be sitting up here. That, that was just so awkward. Um, we want, we want to uh, kind of have more of the Christ attitude and not exalting ourselves and what have you. They were stuck on this. Uh, uh, and, um, 
you know, Pharisees, they wanted these spots and they wanted to be seen of men. Um, and now some of the words that we have on here um, might be uh, unfamiliar to you, like for the word phylactery. Did you see what it said there? Uh, they want to make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Um, what are the phylacteries? Now, it, it comes from Deuteronomy, uh, you know, the, the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 6, 8, um, when it talks about the word of God, it says, and you shall bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes. So what does this verse mean? If you ask me, I think this verse means, you know, um, your hand speaks of what you do, and between your eyes, you know, your brain uh, is, is what you're thinking about. But the Jews, um, you know, they made more of this and said, oh, we need to literally bind um, you know, scripture on our hands and on our frontlets between our eyes, on our forehead. And so they came up with phylacteries. Uh, and here's a picture of a Jew that we uh, took when we were in Jerusalem as he's standing by the Western Wall. He's got his little phylactery on his forehead there. And you'll see the binding on the hand as well. They would bind with these leather straps um, scriptures. Uh, um, and, and by the way, um, there were specific scriptures, four specific scriptures they would bind in these little boxes. Um, for you that are taking notes, it's worth a study. Exodus 13, a couple scriptures there, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. Um, uh, you know, of course, Deuteronomy 6, 5 is that great Shema that we were talking about, remember a few weeks ago? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, and uh, might, and all that. And then, you know, hero Israel. Uh, the Lord thy God is one God. That, that's that one that they would bind uh, in their phylacteries on their heads. Now, one of the things that's funny, uh, do you remember uh, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls there uh, in Qumran caves there in Israel back in the 1940s? Changed everything. Uh, it was one of the most amazing archeological finds uh, in history, if you ask me, because it confirmed our Bible as reliable, uh, among other things. But one of the funny things they found in there also were phylacteries and they found big ones, big honking phylacteries. Um, you say, what's the deal with that? Well, it, it, it lines up with what Jesus was saying here. Jesus said, you have, you have made your phylacteries, you've been, made them more broad and bigger. Uh, I could just see, you know, uh, Rabbi Cohen over there and he comes with his phylactery and then uh, Rabbi such and such walks in and realizes his phylactery is smaller than the other guy. So he goes home and makes a, a bigger phylactery and boom, you know, and, and the other guy comes, oh man, and gets home, puts a box. Pretty soon they're dragging their foreheads, you know, big boxes. And Jesus says, you think that's a good thing? Like Jesus is broadening your phylacteries, making them bigger to make you, make you look more holy, like you're more spiritual. I hope, I hope we don't do those things that try to make us look more spiritual when it really has nothing to do with true spirituality. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know what, what that really looks like today, but you know, maybe it, you know, somebody gets a brand new Bible and you think, oh, I don't want my Bible to look new. So you drag it behind your car on the way to church just to make sure it looks, you know, uh, look how hard I read my Bible, you know. And um, now I have to admit, this Bible fell out of my motorcycle once and landed on the highway. Uh, it's a long story, and a truck ran over it. Uh, so this isn't all just me weeping over my Bible uh, reading. Some of it was truck going to run over, but um, fortunately the leather withstood, and I found my. It's a long story, but um, I didn't do that on purpose. Uh, but <laughs> but but it is funny. How we, what, what do people perceive us to be? And, and these guys were very very concerned about the appearances. 
um, enlarging not only their phylacteries, but the borders of their garments. What was that all about? Well, in, you can jot this one down in your notes. Numbers 15, 37 through 40. Um, the Lord you know, speaks to Moses. I'll just read this really quick. Um, it says, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speaking to the children of Israel, and bind them that they make the fringes of their borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they uh, put a fringe on the border, a, rib, a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, that you seek not after your own heart, after your own eyes, after uh, which you use to go whoring, that you remember and do all my commandments. So they were supposed to wear these fringes of their garments um, so that they would remember the commandments. Um, but one of the things they would do is they, they, they started making their phylacteries bigger, but they also, as Jesus condemns them, he says, and you've enlarged the borders of your garments to make it, ooh, he's got a honking border. He must be really spiritual. Um, you know what's funny about, these are things they wore uh, to sort of appear spiritual. I think one of the ways we do that today in some churches is we somehow think that how we dress up and look really fancy that somehow that makes us more spiritual than a church that maybe isn't as snazzy dressed or dressed up. And you're just arguing for your own sloppiness. Um, no, I, I really think it's a problem where if a person is not wearing the proper attire is not gonna feel welcome in a certain church, then I think we've dropped the ball. Um, I would hope that uh, a homeless person could step into Athey Creek and not go, oh, I'm so out of place here. And I mean, I'd want them to come in and be loved on and cared for. And um, I think that some people make too much of, I'm just dressing up to reverence the Lord on Sunday. No, you're actually trying to show off how wealthy you are and the fancy duds and the car you drive and all that stuff. Like, like it's a funny thing where people make a show of, of stuff that I think Jesus, he sees it all. He sees the real motive behind what we do. And, um, and you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, people get all tangled up on these things, but the truth is the Lord is the one who actually matters, what his mind is. And Jesus is telling these religious leaders, yeah, you guys have dropped the ball on this. You're big phylacteries and your broadened borders on your garments. You've totally dropped the ball. And I, but everybody in the world thought they were very holy and very religious and everybody esteemed them as great religious people. And Jesus is saying, you guys are horrible. In fact, his words are gonna get even more brutal as we go along here. Um, so uh, back to uh, our text here in Matthew 23. Let's pick it up in verse eight. It says, but um, be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brothers. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Isn't this one of those scriptures we kind of have to marvel how many people ignore it? Just completely ignore this scripture. This is Jesus, this is red letters. And he's saying, don't call anyone your father as some of our Catholic brothers and sisters go to a Catholic church and say, uh, forgive me, father, for I've sinned. He's not your father. Hello, Jesus said, don't call anybody your father. Um, uh, well, Brett, you, you're called pastor. Just call me Brett, I'm happy with that. Um, and I am a pastor, but, but that's, it's funny how even the word pastor can take on new meaning 
even though that is a biblical church function, uh, the pastor is a, the one who feeds the flock. It's a method of shepherding is the idea of the word pastor. And the word elder and bishop and deacon, those are all names in the Bible, but they're describing um, roles of service to uh, be humble and serve the congregation, not, not for, oh, he's a pastor. It was never meant to be that. Pastor meant to be a servant. Um, and that's kind of what we have to remember. Isn't it amazing? Like all this stuff Jesus says, don't call anyone your father on earth. Of course, now don't, don't get this wrong. You can call your father father. And, and we know that because Jesus does talk about that uh, in other pa- passages. But the, the idea is those religious leaders that want to be called father, don't be calling them father. That's, that's the context here. Um, and don't call them rabbi. Uh, for one is your master, and that is Christ, um, which Jesus is the Christ. Um, and then he goes and talks like we've heard him before. If you want to be great, you need, you need to be uh, a servant. And whoever shall exalt himself, this is a promise of Jesus. If you're trying to exalt yourself, verse 12, you're going to be abased. But if you humble yourself, then you're going to be exalted. It's those ironies of biblical truth. The more you try to exalt yourself, the more goofy you're gonna look. But the more you really truly have a humble heart, the Lord says, you know, he'll exalt you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will what? Lift you up. That's right. So um, we have here kind of this radical, you know, continuation of Jesus saying, you know, don't, don't give in to titles. Watch out for titles. And that's something I think the church should take a little more literally uh, now. So, so now in, in verse 13, we have a new section here <clears throat> as we leave the titles and Jesus sort of hammering away at these Pharisees and Sadducees and their scribes and all their wanting to be exalted and all this stuff. Now he's gonna go into the eight woes that we talked about earlier, the woes. And, um, and this is gonna be heavy. But I would like, if you would, to allow me to uh, do a little compare and contrast as we travel through the eight woes. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna parallel the, the, um, these bad attitudes that uh, Jesus is condemning with woes, and we're gonna c- compare these bad attitudes with the beatitudes of Matthew chapter five. Remember Matthew chapter five, Sermon on the Mount? A few months back, we went through the, the beatitudes. Remember, the beatitudes are the attitudes which we are supposed to be. And we covered that a while back. But these are sort of like the bad attitudes and there's eight of them. But I find it interesting. They actually correspond, in my opinion, perfectly uh, as the counterpart to the B attitudes, the bad attitudes and the B attitudes. And so let's do that if you'd allow me. Um, and, and we really start here in verse 13 to see this compare and contrast uh, here. So comparing chapter 23 with chapter five, uh, we're only gonna scratch the surface on this really. But let's start with verse 13. It says, but woe unto you, first woe of eight, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. What's this all about? Verse 13 is bad attitude number one. Um, and what is that? It's, it's pridefulness that shuts heaven off to them and everyone else. What do you mean, Brett? Well, this is where we look at the beatitude in Matthew chapter five, verse three. The first, the first uh, one that corresponds with verse 13 is chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
This first bad attitude doesn't let anyone into the kingdom of heaven. It's shut up to those Pharisees and those that want to enter in. The, the, the religion that these guys promote doesn't get anyone into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees wanted to be seen of men and they were haughty and they were prideful, but the Lord uses this term woe eight times in this section, calling the, the, the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites seven times, by the way. And he's gonna accuse them here of blocking the way to heaven. Um, they're not only um, you know, not doing a good job getting people into heaven, they're actually a barrier to heaven is the idea. And if they keep it up, heaven's gonna be shut off to them as well. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's where you have to be concerned about these churches that have the appearance of religion, but they don't have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, those churches are a barrier for people. Um, you know, if you think you're going to a church because you're uh, some religious institution, you're part of some membership, and you're doing your dutiful show up to church for this or that, or you know, doing works, good things, hopefully your good outweighs your bad, that's not gonna get you to heaven. That's a barrier to get you away from heaven, but it's not gonna get you to heaven. So in some ways we have to kind of ask the question, who are those today that would keep people from heaven? And sadly, there's a lot of that going on today. Um, and some of the churches I mentioned earlier that are all you know, um, just hanging up truth, hanging up biblical doctrine and saying, yeah, we're gonna be more woke and we're gonna be more pro-gay, lesbian, LGBTQIA. We're gonna support this and that. But, but those churches are also ones you're never gonna hear you're a sinner who's headed for hell and destruction and the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ and him alone. You'll never hear that in those churches. Um, so the same thing could be said about these uh, many churches today, especially in the Portland area. It's so sad to see how many uh, bad attitudes there are. So um, bad attitude number one is that prideful heaven being shut off. B attitude number one is blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. Uh, and it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you have one with the kingdom of heaven, the others who are a barrier to the kingdom of heaven. That's bad attitude number one. We see bad attitude number two in verse uh, 14. Second, woe. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. Now, some of you are scratching your heads right now saying, um, wait a minute, my Bible doesn't have that verse. And, and, and you're right, because you're um, holding the... Um, the nearly inspired version, uh, the NIV. No, just just kidding. Little little, little translation joke. Um, if you have a uh, if you have a New International or an ESV, uh, I think um, the New Living Translation. All of those translations left verse fourteen out. Did you notice that? You have no verse fourteen in your Bible. You now you say, why is that? Um, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, uh, in my opinion, for you, um, that you don't have that verse because now you say, Brad, come on. Well, here's the thing. Um, it, it's not a huge deal, and I'll tell you why. Because some of you might be, I'm gonna burn the Bible when I get out of here. Cause, no, don't do that. Um, uh, why did those translations leave verse 14 out? Um, some translations use the oldest manuscripts. Uh, now remember, a manuscript is a copy uh, that, uh, from the original. And as it turns out, we don't have any of the originals of Paul's writing in his hand, you know, we don't have that. Um, but we do have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts. And, um, and so, depends on what you're doing, but uh, 
But you know, some of the oldest manuscripts may or may not have had verse 14 in the manuscript. Uh, so it was left out of some of the manuscripts. Other manuscripts had verse 14. So, um, so as it turns out, this is typically like, here's an example. Um, you know, uh, some had more manuscript evidence of verse 14, like there were more manuscripts with verse 14, but the oldest ones didn't have. So, so some of the people say, well, the oldest ones are the most important ones. Others say, no, it's the numerous volumes of the other uh, quantity of manuscripts that had verse 14. And so people say, what are we gonna do? Good news. Uh, it, whatever Bible you have, and, and like you, you don't have an Acts 8.37 either. Uh, and there's other scriptures you're missing in your Bible because of that same issue. But good news, everything in those verses you can learn elsewhere in the Bible. In other words, it shouldn't shake your faith or your basic understanding of true solid doctrine. So don't freak out. Uh, but, I, but I do like, I, I'm just gonna say, this is why, one of the reasons I mentioned on Sunday why I'm partial to the King James. I like that the King James um, you know, took the oldest manuscripts, uh, or pardon me, the, the, the most numerous manuscripts. And by the way, it does have to do also with the canon of scripture. I, I believe, and this, this gets really tricky even talking about something so in, in only in a few minutes, dealing with something as heavy as the canon of scripture. But that is, um, the, the canon is the, the word, canon means read or measurement. And the early fathers, they, uh, when they put the scriptures together from the writings of the apostles and the, all the scriptures, um, they measured scripture and they put it together. And, and that's the thing that I think it was equally inspired by the way. It was equally inspired, the putting together of scripture as was the writing of scripture. Now, the reason that's important to you is because have you had somebody come up and say, what about the book of Enoch? Enoch was in the Bible, so that should be in the Bible. Well, the early fathers said no. And I believe that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so there's all these books, and, and I'll tell you, all the wackos come out there with these books, the lost book of this or the lost book of that. Watch out when those people start bringing out the lost books. Um, nobody lost them, they just didn't get them in the, in the Bible. They didn't make the measurement of what would be called the Word of God, and I believe in the early fathers. I'm giving you a really quick Reader's Digest version of something that's kind of esoteric. But if you wanna study the uh, canon of scripture and how it was deemed in inspired and part of the Word of God, I believe that whole process was part of the inspiration of scripture, the, not only the writing of it, but the collecting of it. So that's kind of what I lean on, is, is, is what did the early fathers uh, say was scripture? And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I do like the King James is it tends to include verses uh, that, that they would, I think they were included uh, in, in some of those other uh, earlier manuscripts as well. So uh, it's a big argument, don't let it bother you. It shouldn't bother you, but that's why that verse is not there. So I'm gonna read that verse again, so because uh, some of you guys don't have it. <clears throat> Verse 14, Jesus says, "'Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you devour widows' houses "'and for a pretense make long prayers. "'Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation.'" So this, this is um, really um, bad attitude number two. And that is long prayers and not actually helping anyone, not helping the widows. They were pretending to help the widows and they'd come with their long-winded prayers, seeming like holy men, but they wouldn't actually help anyone. Um, which is a real bummer because um, it's interesting, the, the beatitude that corresponds with this one is Matthew chapter five, verse four. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Like Jesus talked about not just faking and praying for those that are mourning and widows and hurting, but actually being there, comfort, there to really comfort them. That's the right attitude. They have the wrong attitude. The Pharisees could care less about someone in need. Um, they would use people in need for their own gain. Um, and that's why in verse 14, it says, um, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Um, it's ugly when religious ministries or churches, uh, you know, uh, say, we don't care about those that are in need. We don't care about the widow. We don't care about those that are hurting. That's hypocrisy. And these, these um, religious leaders were doing that all the way back in Jesus's time. And sad to say it, it's happening even still today. Um, the, the church of Jesus Christ should constantly be asking, how can we help people? Um, and that's what Athey Creek elders and leadership, we constantly are saying, how can we better help people? And, and by the way, that's a tricky thing because some people really need help. Some people say they need help, but they don't need help. Some people need help, but they actually need a job and, and they aren't willing to have a job. Like it, it gets really tricky. Um, and the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So like there's a balance of praying about how do we help people? And so um, that's something that we do really wanna do. And our whole pastoral care team uh, is constantly helping and reaching out to people that are struggling and hurting. And, um, and that's something we wanna be a part of and do. Uh, so keep that in prayer. That's a major part of what the church should be doing, helping people, um, not getting unrighteous gain from people that are hurting. That's, that's what these guys were doing. And that brings us to bad attitude number three. Verse 15, the third woe. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you uh, compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye uh, make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Um, is Jesus using strong words here? <laughs> this is interesting. Um, um, do you think Jesus is getting a little ticked at these people? Um, by the way, this is interesting because I have Jewish friends in Jerusalem say the Jews never ever believed in evangelism, which they don't really today. Um, you don't see Jews going around evangelizing to become people to become Jews today. But this is my argument. In Jesus's time, they were doing that because of what Jesus says here. These guys would travel to and fro crossing sea to make one proselyte or one convert to Judaism is the idea there. Um, and Jesus says, you're not converting them to anything, but getting them ripened for hell. Um, question, did Jesus believe in hell? And I would just say, so should you then. If Jesus believed in hell, you should too. And I say that, you say, why would you say that, Brett? Because so many churches today are saying, yeah, hell's not real. It's not a real place. Well, Jesus sure believed that. Um, I hope you understand that. But a child of hell, the Pharisees uh, were trying to convert people to their legalistic, hypocritical religious system. And the tragedy is this, these legalists would lay their trip on other people and the convert would become more zealous than they are and even more uh, headed for damnation and uh, literal hell. Um, so uh, what's, what's the um, uh, beatitude number three, uh, compare and contrast? Matthew chapter five, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, not overly bold in your face like these guys converting their legalists, but um, converting them by sympathy and, and integrity and, and meekness, and they will inherit the earth. The earth. Um, it, it reminds me of Jesus's one autobiographical statement in Matthew eleven twenty nine: 29, for I am meek and lowly in heart. 
That's the way Jesus moved, not like these guys. Um, so that brings us to number, what are we on, number four? Uh, bad attitude, um, number four. Uh, it's there in verse uh, 16. 16 through 22, actually. He says, woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. You fools and blind, for whether it is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever swear by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. You fools and blind, for whether it is greater, the gift or the altar that sacrifice, uh, sacrifice the gift, whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon, and whosoever shall swear by the temple, swears by it, and by him that dwelleth therein, and he that shall swear by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Now you say, Brad, I'm confused. What is this all about? Um, the idea is, these guys were playing these dumb games about what you swore upon. If you swore upon the temple, you don't really have to keep your word that much because it's not as important as if you swore to the gold in the temple. Um, um, it's, it's like when you were little kids, remember? I swear to God, do you? Really? Swear to God, hope to die? Like, think about kids. You're, you said that, swear to God, hope to die. And if you really were really sincere, you'd say, swear to God, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That meant you were really telling the truth. Um, that's what the Jews were doing pretty much right here. They're, they're swearing upon the temple or upon the altar or about the sacrifice on the altar and they were just doing dumb stuff. They were playing games. But um, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 33 through 37? You might jot that down next to this scripture here in, in Matthew 23 because Jesus said, swear not at all, neither by heaven or God's throne, um, but make your member communication, yay, yay, and your nay, nay. In other words, just be a person of your word and don't swear at all. Um, Jesus is saying, well, you know, you guys are arguing about what's bigger to swear on, the temple or the temple gold. Either way, they weren't keeping their word. Um, and so um, they were finding, you know, loopholes of ways to sort of play around and, and mess with it. There was no real honesty and no righteousness in their words. That's why we look at the next beatitude against the bad attitude of them finding loopholes and doing sinful swearing and all this. Um, Jesus said in, in his beatitudes, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Totally opposite of bad attitude, number four. Um, so that's bad attitude, number four. Bad attitude, number five, verse 23. Woe, number five, it says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, that is tithe, um, and not to leave the other undone, the mercy, the faith, the judgment. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. I think if I were there, I would have laughed out loud. Um, I don't know if I should have, but it's funny. They're straining on a gnat, but they're swallowing a camel. That's funny imagery right there. Jesus was being hilarious because they were just so ridiculous in what they were doing. Um, what's this bad attitude number five? They're, fo they're focused more on their giving one-tenth of their spices and acting all holy, uh, but they didn't care about the law and judgment, mercy and truth. 
Um, they were into their little religious practices, but didn't care about people. Um, and being merciful, showing mercy to people. Instead of they were counting their spices, but couldn't care less about mercy. And that's why beatitude number five matches perfectly. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Um, mercy, having the greater focus on that. Do you remember M Micah chapter six, verse eight? The, the, the prophet Micah said it in Old Testament times. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord desires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Um, the people were all into their religious stuff, but Micah squares them away. He says, you gotta, you gotta do what's, what the Lord actually cares about. So they were straining on a gnat, swallowing a camel. I like J. Vernon McGee. He made this sort of, uh, he, said, he said about this whole straining on and that thing. I remember a dear lady who used to argue about the use of lipstick. Um, she thought it was awful. And yet she had the meanest tongue of any person I know. She didn't think it was a bad thing to have a mean tongue, but lipstick was terrible. Frankly, the paint of gossip on the end of the tongue, especially when it is used uh, to blacken someone's reputation, it's a lot worse than a little paint on the lips. It is amazing how people can strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Um, it's funny because uh, Jay Vernon, when he was a pastor, there was a big thing about makeup. You know, women, should they wear makeup? You know, the devil's paint on your face. And uh, Jay Vernon, that old country preacher said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> that, was, that was his theological answer to that. But he was saying how this woman was all against lipstick, lipstick, and she went around talking horrible about people. And, and he, he used that as an example, straining on a gnat, but swallowing a camel. And that's really what the Pharisees were doing. So verse 25 brings us to the sixth of the woes, bad attitude, number six, verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may also be clean. Uh, boy, this is a, uh, the same thing we were talking about. You can have a shiny look on the outside, be wearing fancy clothes, but what's going on on the inside? Um, Jesus calls them out. And this is where the beatitude matches up. Matthew chapter five, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not pure externally, it's the inside of the person. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. It matches perfectly with Jesus's woes against these. Um, it reminds me of 1 Samuel 16, 7, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Um, that's an important. So um, that's why, by the way, we don't have pointy hats and robes and uh, swinging incense things here because that's all man-made uh, religion. Uh, that's not in the Bible. The early church had no pointy hats, no fancy robes. They were just normal people wearing their normal clothes. That's why Athey Creek does that. We're just doing what the early church did. And we think that's probably better. Uh, and, and worry more about what's on the inside of you than what you're actually wearing on the outside. That's so important. Bad attitude number uh, seven. Woe number seven is there in verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto uh, whited sepulchers, speaking of death, tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all, un uh, and all, and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. 
Now this thing about the death and the dead men's bones inside, the, the beatitude that matches this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. These guys are not having peace in their hearts, but they have death in their hearts. At the same time, the Pharisees claimed to be men of peace. They were secretly plotting to murder the Prince of Peace as we speak in this story. So Jesus is calling that out by this dead men's bones. And they, you know, they killed the prophets. We talked about that on Sunday. So that's really what Jesus is calling out. And then the eighth uh, woe is verse 29 through uh, 33. It says, uh, woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Again, does Jesus believe in hell? Yes, that's very clear. I, I point that out because so many goofballs are trying to claim there's no such thing as hell. Um, and, and so Jesus is saying, you guys are gonna go to hell. And then he continues in verse 34, wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify. Some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Bacharias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Jesus basically says, you've, sl you've slain all the prophets from A to Z, from Abel all the way to Zechariah, who you killed uh, at the temple altar. These are, these are the deaths from the, Abel in the book of Genesis all the way through, you've slain the prophets. And he's saying, you're guilty of that. But what's worse than killing the prophets is killing Jesus, the son of the living God. And that's, that's where, um, you know, bad attitude number eight. Now, B attitude number eight um, uh, I'm gonna call it number eight and nine because this kind of is two Beatitudes, but they go together. It's Matthew chapter five, verses 10 through 12. And this, here's where we start to wrap it up with the Beatitudes. Um, speaking of the persecuted, the prophets and the, that were killed and Jesus ultimately being the ultimate sacrifice. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so prosecuted they the prophets which were before you. See how these beatitudes go perfectly next to these bad attitudes and the woes of chapter 23? I hope you're seeing that. And man, these Jews, they did. They killed and destroyed the prophets. And basically, um, you know, this, this is Jesus saying, you guys are gonna be in big trouble. You're gonna be persecuted because you persecuted the prophets. And boy, have the Jews been persecuted since the time of Christ? Oh man, we could talk about the Roman crushing in AD 70. We could talk about many other times where Jews throughout history have been killed. Uh, you know, even the, um, you know, the, in Spain, you know, there was 300,000 Jews killed during the time when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, you know, we, we know that one, but uh, there was a lot of other things that happened then as well. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella uh, and the Inquisition, all that stuff. Tens of thousands of Jews killed then. Hitler and the Holocaust. Like this is, you, you feel bad for the Jews, but, but Jesus says, here's why all that's kind of happening during this time. Now don't forget the Lord still has a plan for the Jews um, and um, 
That's what chapter 24 is gonna tell us about. Um, but let's, let's finish up. Verse 36, it says, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now, some people take this verse that we just read, verse 36, say, so all this that we're about to read in chapter 24 is gonna come upon this generation. And I don't believe that's what it's saying. I, I believe that Jesus is saying persecution is gonna come upon this generation that he's talking to right there. And it did. In AD 70, the Romans did crush uh, the Jews. Uh, and it's a horrible, horrible story. We'll talk about that next week. But Matthew chapter 24, there's much of it that still has yet to be fulfilled, and we'll talk about how that shakes out in Bible prophecy. Persecutions, bloodshed, all because of their, uh, their um, rebellion and their persecution of the saints. And that's why now Jesus is gonna weep over Jerusalem. And the, the verse we finish with tonight is what we read Sunday. He finishes this dissertation saying, "'O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stone them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Um, we looked at that verse, those, those three verses really on Sunday. Does that, does that verse feel kind of different to after tonight going through that whole chapter? Um, that's why context is so important. I mean, it was fun talking about this on Sunday, you know, how uh, the chickens gathering her little hens, or little chicklets, uh, her, the hens gathering the chicklets. That was great talking about that on Sunday. But if that's all you got, you kind of miss a lot of the nuance of what that whole thing is about. You have to have the whole chapter. And I hope you see that tonight, that getting the whole context of the woes, eight woes upon these people, it starts to make this next, that, that, those last verses pop when we understand the context. So uh, that's why we go verse by verse through the Bibles to get the whole thing. So good plan? Yes. Lord, we do pray that you'd help us with these things. Lord, that we would have um, ability to just uh, absorb these scriptures. We see these Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees as uh, what not to do. Um, bad attitudes. But I pray that as we reflect on all the Beatitudes, that we'd just remember what you've called us to actually be and the things we're supposed to do. Lord, help us not be pharisaical, um, lacking mercy, trying to be perceived as some big shot or, or as someone we're really not. Lord, uh, help us to have right thinking of ourselves, but uh, trust in leaning on you, for you alone bring salvation, Lord. So bless these, your people who've carved out time on a Wednesday night to cover these scriptures, Lord. May it bring forth good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.